0: We reached a part in this series where I hope we are going to transition from, okay, so I see what you're saying, Chip. I see it's clearly taught in Scripture. I see that God's plan has always been to set apart uh, a people um, uh, for His purposes, and I see that, and I, I get how it is, it is vital to His plan, His design. Uh, it's the old-school uh, terminology of holiness or sanctified. or That's, that's what this whole set-apart idea is. So we've kind of tried to set the framework for that. And we're realizing in this, in this series three things, that we are set-apart by him, we are set-apart to him, but we are set-apart for him also. And so if we've looked at the by him, um, really the idea was that in the, in the Old Testament, as God is introducing himself to us, um, as he's revealing his, his plan, his will, early on, he was very intent on helping us to see that he wants to set us apart. And the way he started to do that was by calling out a people and then making them a very set-apart people from all the lands around them. And he had this whole list of, of rules and regulations and rituals that he asked them to do. And primarily that was to create an identity. I am God's person. This is who I am. I am vastly different than the, the countries, the worlds, and nations around me because I am serving this one God. And, uh, and, and that's why today we don't follow uh, those rules and regulations because they were for a certain time for a certain purpose. I hope you enjoy pork, right? I do. Um, Thank the Lord that he said, you know what? That was just an object lesson, and uh, it's not really. You know, Jesus is like, it's not what comes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man. And in those statements, he totally just abolished all that Old Testament stuff. What he was doing was he was setting a he was making an object lesson for them to grab onto and for us to grab onto. But we see as his story continues in the Old Testament, as we're moving closer to the whole big ball of wax, Jesus Christ, uh, he begins to inspire his prophets to share to them that, listen, being holy or being set apart, it was uh, trying to observe this, 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 and this, and then obviously failing and sacrificing be, to ask for forgiveness and to, to, uh, to be right with God. but it was, it was all about that, but what I'm wanting you to see is that my ultimate the plan, the design has always been, was not just for you to follow, try to make yourself holy. It's for me, through the person of the Holy Spirit, to come into your life, the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, to come into your life, and in so doing, to begin to make you holy holy. And we see that as Ezekiel and Isaiah and the prophets, the, minor, the major prophets, the minor prophets begin, Joel I'm going to I'm going to pour my holy spirit on all people as he begins to uh, begins to introduce them to that we see that Jesus comes and he lives and even as he's winding down his the, look at Thursday night's conversations before Friday's crucifixion John 14 15 16 he can't stop talking about one thing the holy spirit the holy spirit the Holy Spirit. I am going to send a comforter. I am going to send this one. And in fact, he tells them to wait. As he's getting ready to ascend, he says, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. The big deal of all the promises God has had in scripture, the promise of the Father is the big one. And the promise of the Father is what? I will pour out my Holy Spirit on you. And those 120 in an upper room, the church started, the church started because of one thing, The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit showed up. And in this, it completely reorients who we're supposed to be and what is going on. And now we get, hey, he has called us to be set apart. And you know what? It is possible now because of the Holy Spirit that is available to us. And so in understanding, what does it mean to be set apart? What does it mean to fulfill God's purpose for my life and his purpose in this world? Well, he's going to do it through a, what is it uh, Peter says? He's going to do it through a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, pers- a people set apart to declare the praises of his glory. He is going to be able to do that when he comes into our heart and life through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so now it is, it's, it's attainable it can happen but it's not on your gra- it's not on your merit it's not on your ability it's simply in allowing the holy spirit into your life and having him do his work in us and so we've seen that we are set apart by him that being set apart is a work of the holy spirit now we're obviously operating with this paradigm that holiness is best understood as Christ-likeness. And that actually holiness is also understood in the realm of love. Because if this is what God wants to do with us, to make us holy, at the same time he's told us that everything hangs on loving God and loving others, then these two must be interconnected, intertwined. For so long we think of holiness as, as something that's individual. Or it's about making us into something that it's like a trophy type idea. That's never been the purpose of God. He wants to make us set apart so that we are able to love him and to love others. And in fact, the last week of this series, we're going to especially focus on what does it mean to be a holy person? It really means a life that is dedicated to loving others, serving his kingdom. That's what it means, the holiest people in the world are the people who love others and give themselves to, uh, to serving others. So we want to jump into the second part, and I want to start it by this little story, and you can look this up, I'm sure some of you will. <laughs> you know, you're preaching in the 21st century now, you say something, somebody's like, oh, I'll just Google that, you know. Um, which is fine. You, you should be able to do that. The, the old joke was preachers would tell stories, and sometimes, you know, that's great. I'm I'm not telling any false stories or making stuff up. But um, <clears throat> Hiru Onada. We got a picture of him here. This is Hiru Onada. 1974. This picture was taken. 29 years. 29 years after the Japanese surrendered in World War II. 1945, right? This is a picture of Hiru Onada in 1974. For 29 years, Hiru Onada had refused to surrender. Here's how the story went. Early in 1945, he was dropped off by the Japanese in the Philippine, the Philippine Islands. And he was instructed by his commander, do not surrender. Do not surrender. It doesn't even matter if Japan surrenders, you do not surrender. And Hiru Onada, being a good, a good soldier, took that to heart and refused to surrender. And here's how his story went for 29 years. Listen to this. <clears throat> All efforts to convince him to surrender or capture him failed. He ignored messages from loudspeakers announcing Japan's surrender, and that now even Japan was now an ally of the United States. 29 years, right? Leaflets were dropped over the jungle begging him to surrender so he could return to Japan. He refused to believe or surrender. Over the years, he lived off the land. He raided the fields and the gardens of local citizens. He was responsible for killing at least 30 nationals during his 29-year personal war, almost a half million dollars was spent trying to locate and to convince him to surrender. 13,000 men were used to try to locate him. Finally, on March 10, 1974, Onada surrendered his rusty sword after receiving a personal command from his former superior officer who read the terms of the ceasefire order. He handed over his sword, and, it was, and he was actually pardoned. The war was over, finally, for Onada. He was 22 years old when he was left on the island. They say he returned a prematurely aged man of 52. And this is what he said. Nothing pleasant happened in the 29 years in the jungle. Nothing pleasant it was about those 29 years. I want you to, I want to set, I have that story set the context for what I'm about ready to share for you to you and then at the end. Because the scriptures teach us that this being set apart is it's by him, but it's to him. We are part of an exclusive relationship. You see, we've. We've understood that it's what he wants to do. But how in the world does that come about? It's in this this teaching of scripture of an exclusive relationship with Jesus Christ. Exclusive. You know, it's something we grab onto and the scriptures actually use a lot. We think of exclusive in the terms of like marriage, right? Forsaking all others, I will live only to... You, right? You said those words as you stood and took your vows, forsaking all others. I am entering into an exclusive relationship, right? And to break that, we use terms like adultery. And you know what? It It is exactly the same terminology that God uses about our relationship with him. He uses terms like in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, when they would turn to other gods and they would forsake him, he would use terminology like, you have committed adultery against me. I want you to think about what that means, how that plays out. Maybe you've experienced that you've seen that happen um, when there is adultery that takes place and the pain and the suffering and the rage and the disappointment and the devastation that it causes in a marriage relationship. And that's what he says, when you turn from me, I, I, I am wanting an exclusive relationship with you. Remember the second, the second commandment he gave in his moral law? You shall have no other gods before me. This is an exclusive deal. He, uh, he says things like, I the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. It's exclusive. That's what, his, that's, what his, that's what his design is. That's what he's going for. Is I want to be yours and I want you to be mine. And he does things like covenants and he makes promises and he gives himself completely to us. In the goal, in the end, that you and I will also enter into an exclusive relationship with God. And so I want to talk about for a a few moments how the scriptures kind of give us an idea of how this works out. God is calling me to an exclusive relationship with him. You would say, Chip, well, I don't, I don't have any statue of Buddha in my living room, or I don't have any gods standing up, you know, like you know the Old Testament gods. Well, it's always been, the bigger idea in scripture has always been that idols are are made in the heart, not made out of a, a physical properties, so to speak. They manifest themselves in physical properties, and, and for the ancient worlds, it was very visible, but it still has always been the idea that the the idols that we can create become all sorts of things that we follow after that we neglect our relationship with God to pursue. And any time we have an affection or a love for something that is Contrary to the person of who God is and his teaching, his teachings, and and what would violate our relationship with him, it becomes an idol and it becomes something that is, is, uh, it violates this exclusive relationship he wants to have with us. Did you say, okay, I get that? I figured when you you started this series, you were going to talk about this, right? Set apart, set apart to what? I want you to see some things in the scriptures, the New Testament, how this works out, how this plays out. The book of Ephesians, if you were to open the book of Ephesians, you would quickly understand that these people were, uh, man, they were, they were exemplary believers. They were, they were on fire for God. They had a lot of great stuff. He says a lot of wonderful things about them in chapter one. Um. But Paul begins to pray for them in chapter three, and he begins to say things like, <clears throat> "I'm on my knees." It's a very intensive word, and I'm praying this chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter three, verse sixteen. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through what? Holy Spirit. Here we go. That's the only way we should understand Christianity. It's not us doing something, it's him in us. Christ in you, empowering you. The Holy Spirit, through his spirit, in your inner being. So that Christ may what? Dwell in your hearts through faith. And if you're like me, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. These people are Christians. Christ is already in their lives What do you mean Christ needs to dwell in their lives? He already is dwelling in their lives. It's already very apparent, chapter one of Ephesians, these people are believers. They have the Holy Spirit. Why is Paul praying that they might dwell? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because this is so intentional, it's so beautiful. In fact, there's Robert Munger wrote a really, really popular book on this called My Heart, Christ's Home. And in that, um, he takes that word and we begin to realize that that word is an intense word. Um, let me see, who was I? Uh, MacArthur this week has a lot of material on this word. I was looking at him, and I don't want to go spit that out right now. But basically, it's this idea that Christ might dwell in your, in your heart. But Paul's prayer is that dwelling might grow until he becomes Lord of your heart, of every part of your life. He's praying that this dwelling that Christ has is one of master, of Lord, of everything. If you've ever read Munger's book, it's this idea of you know, Christ has become a guest. You've invited him into your heart. You've invited him into your home. But his desire has always been to be the master of your home. I pray that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that when this happens, what's going to happen? You are going to be rooted and established in what? Love. You know, it's later on in Ephesians chapter 5 that he prays this. Don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other sermon I love to preach on that passage right there because it's so beautiful. You say again, they have the Holy Spirit. These people are Christians. Romans chapter 8 says, you're only a Christian if the Holy Spirit's in you. What is Paul talking about? He keeps coming back to this theme, but Christ may dwell, that you might be filled. The idea of filled, it's a beautiful thing that it, it can mean a lot of different things, but at the heart of it, it is that you might be controlled. By the Holy Spirit. Just, it's a contrast, right? Um, it's a contrast. When you drink wine and you begin to drink it to excess, it begins to control you. Amen? You ever been there? <laughs> you are not in control. That's what we begin to call drunkenness. We see this. We call it impaired. You can't drive impaired. You, can't, it's, you are no longer in control of who you are. The wine is now exerted control over your judgment. He says, think about that. Instead, the reality is, I want the Holy Spirit to control you. I want you to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. You know, this word filled, it's like we understand it. Jesus, like in the, in the, in the Gospels, he heard bad news and he was filled with sorrow. In other words, he was controlled by sorrow at that moment. Correct? I mean, sorrow was the the controlling emotion in his life. Everything else took a back seat. He was so, you've been there, right? When you've been filled with sorrow, it it controls every part of the way you look at your life right then. It it has control of you. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians. Let's look at another book. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, read these words. He remembers these people, that your work was produced by faith, your labor was prompted by love, your endurance was inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 7, he simply says this, he says, and so you were a model to all believers in Macedonia. You were, if you and I are reading this, we believe what? Christian people, there's no doubt, or either the word lies, or it's being misguiding and again, we can't believe that about the word. It is what it, it is. So he's talking to these believers. Remember Acts 17. He had come into Macedonia. He had only been able to be there for a short time. I, it seems like to me it's almost like a weekend, like a three-day thing. And he, he gets people stirred up. They start, you know, persecuting the people there that are part of the church. And they, they get Paul out of there because they're afraid he's going to die. And Paul had to leave. He was there. He shared the gospel with them. They were converted. The church was started. But he had to get out of there. And so he didn't have time to stay with them and teach them things. And in fact, you begin to realize that as you read further in this epistle. Chapter three, he begins to say things like this. So these are exemplary model believers, right? And he begins to say this. He says, night and day, I have been praying most earnestly that I might see you and supply what is what? Lacking in your faith. Man, I got to share the gospel with you, but man, I want to get back. I've even sent Timothy back to check and see if you're okay because there's another theme of persecution in that book. But I'm really concerned about something. There's something I didn't get to share with you. He says, and I'm praying that the God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ will clear the way for me to come so that the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Again, love here is a common theme that he may strengthen, verse 13, that he may strengthen your heart so that you might be what? Blameless and holy in the presence of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. And then he finishes that book with this simple prayer. May the very God of peace sanctify you Through and through. Completely. Entirely. All of you, right? Everything. Exclusive. I pray that the God of peace would set you apart. Sanctify you. I've been praying about this night and day. I want to share what's lacking in your faith. And he finishes this. I'm praying that he might set you apart through and through, that he might continue to enable you to walk into this exclusive relationship with him. Faithful is he who has called you, who also would do it. Remember, the onus is on him. It's the Holy Spirit by him. It's not you, it's him working in you, bringing you to a point where you are like through and through, baby. It's uh, Everything about me is committed to everything about you, right? That seems like that could be a good song somewhere. Look at Jesus' words, Matthew 16. If you wanna be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, And follow me and this is exclusive stuff this is radical stuff what do you mean deny yourself so that means I don't eat a second plate I'm denying myself I'm gonna be a Jesus follower I'm not gonna eat those donuts today that's not the kind of denying thing we're talking about here the idea is that we see ourselves who we are as sinful as broken as self-centered people who always pursue our own thing above everything else. That's how we're wired. And you know what? We say, I hate that about me. And I see what it's caused in my life. It keeps making a mess. I keep having broken relationships. I keep living with guilt and condemnation. I can't do what I want to do. You know what? I'm willing to turn my back on the sinful, fallen part of myself. I'm gonna deny myself. I'm gonna take up my cross. The instrument, you know, today we use this whole idea of you carry your cross. This is my cross to bear. Please don't say that to me, okay? That's not what the, the idea of cross is in the, old, in, the, in the scriptures. You don't carry a cross around. Jesus carried a cross for a little bit of time and then he did what? He died on it. The cross is always a symbol of death, your husband is not your cross to bear. Your wife is not your cross. Unless they're going to kill you, then you're right. They were your, definitely your cross. It's, so he's saying, listen to follow me, you deny the sinful self. Now we're all created uniquely, personality, we're not denying how he wired us, but we're denying this fallen part of our nature, we're willing to say no to it, and now we're even willing to say, you know what, I'm willing to die to it, I'm willing to allow Jesus to put it to death in my life and follow him. Follow after me, follow and keep following him. So Jesus saw this exclusive relationship, obviously. Look at Romans chapter six. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with so that we should be no longer slaves to sin. I am so sick and tired of our modern culture, Christian culture that has downplayed these scriptures in, in, so that we can make people feel secure and safe and they can feel good. And, and, and we're gonna manage sin. The scriptures never, I love what MacArthur said this week about this. He says, listen, our, 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 anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. I gotta stay where I'm at. We're not supposed to be slaves to sin. It's not, oh, I can't help myself just the way I am. Just no, his plan is to set us apart, to make us vastly different. There's no way the world's ever gonna see Jesus if he's not being recreated in me. If I'm still the person I show up to work, and I'm still the person that I was before I found Jesus, this makes no difference. That's what's happening all over. I don't know how many times I've seen this. I've, I've heard people talk about it to me. Yeah, those Christian people, you know what? They say things on Sunday, but you ought to see the way they do business and the way they, they act and, the, and all this junk at work. How, why should I believe anything's different about them? It's because it's not supposed to be. We're no longer slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that he lived with him. For we know, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has master over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and all. The life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. But alive to Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 13 and says this. You know what he's done. You see it. You need to count. It's a counting term there. It's reckon. It's believe it for yourself now. It's the imputed kind of thing. You know what? I see what he's done. He's died to, he died so that sin might not have mastery over me. I believe that he died to do that. I believe that he can do it for me. Verse 13, he says what? Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. It's this idea, these three kind of things. Know, count, and offer. Man, it's really quiet in here. I'm trying hard to get through this, man. This is, I gotta go. Know, count, and offer. You see, it's this whole idea that God is calling us to an exclusive relationship with him. How does that happen? Well, obviously it's happening in a believer's life. It's happening in a believer's life. If you're not a believer or if you're not a believer here today, then this message is something you can just put on the back burner. You need to find Jesus Christ first. This is kind of just FYI for you. This is to believers. Everywhere in scripture this is taught, it's to believers. It's not to those who don't know God need to make, it's to believers. You're exemplary believers, but I've been praying earnestly that you might have fulfilled what's lacking in your faith. So you need to allow yourself to be sanctified, set apart through and through. Now believers, Roman believers, set yourself, offer yourselves as instruments of righteousness, not instruments to sin. And in fact, in Romans chapter 12, as he's culminating all of the, here's what God's done, and here's what it means to you, he starts the practical side of Romans 12, 13, 14, 16 with this, therefore, I urge you, in light, I beg you, It's Paul's strong language. This means a lot to Paul. This is like my drug addict son, and I am on my knees before him. Please stop doing this. Stop destroying your life. It's that kind of emotion. I beg you. I urge you, brothers and sisters, believers, not heathens, Christians, Christians, I urge you Christians, in view of God's mercy, not motivated because you ought to, it's motivated because God has given you the freedom in him. He's given you this new life. Because of that, offer yourself, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is the only thing that makes sense, is that phrase. This is your true and proper worship. What I'm trying to communicate to you today is that this being set apart, it brings us to a point. God will bring us to the point by the power of his Holy Spirit and through his word to understand that, you know what? I need to be all in on this. Exclusive relationship calls for me to be all in. If God is going to do what he's always wanted to do with us, he invites us to be all in with him. Being set apart to him means this. Being set apart comes by our surrender. For you and I to be holy it will call for us to be surrendered completely to him. I'm not preaching a perfection, but I am preaching a motive that is completely set on loving God and loving others. Absolutely. Surrender says I can hold on and have what I can get or I can let go and have what God has planned for me. There's only so much you can pull off with your life. There's a whole lot more that God can do with your life. But he needs you completely consecrated, surrendered, willing to walk away from whatever it is in your life that you keep saying, you know what, I love God, but I love this a little more because I keep coming back to this, and I know I'm not supposed to, but I love it a little more. I'm willing to say, God, I'm gonna deny myself. I'm willing to turn. I'm willing to exercise my will here and then be empowered by your Holy Spirit to live a new life in Jesus Christ. I love what Elizabeth Elliot says. says, I don't know if this was Jim or Elizabeth. Remember the famous missionary Jim Elliott that died? His wife said this. I don't know if she was quoting Jim, but she says this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is the whole phenomenon of surrender. This is the whole Jesus saying, unless a kernel of corn goes in the ground and dies... Only then can it bear fruit. This is the whole idea of if I want my life to count, I want my life to be what it was designed and created to be, then I have got to step up to the plate where I am willing to let go and let God be master, Lord of everything. We preach this so often as a negative thing. I'm telling you, it's the most positive thing in the world. I remind you of what John Eldred's book is, The Utter Relief of Holiness. I only can speak for myself, but my life has so drastically changed since I learned surrender. Now, it's an ongoing thing. We're going to talk about that next week. It's an ongoing surrender. There's been times in my life, absolutely, every every week, Lord, I'm surrendered to you. I need to reaffirm that. Or maybe there's a new area in my life that I realize, but you know what? When I've come to the point where I've been able to let go, then God can do unbelievable things with me. I've been thinking about this in lieu of baseball, right? Because Keegan started his baseball season. Keegan's real intense, like his dad. And sometimes he gets up there to play, and he tries too hard. You see this all the time in sports, don't you? What do coaches tell you all the time? Don't try too hard. And and so he overswings, and he misses the ball. But when he relaxes, And I'm telling you, we were called, we were meant, we were designed to live our lives with him as our Lord and Savior, our master. And life takes off when we learn to let go to him. Being set apart comes from his surrender. I don't want to be like Hiru Onata and look at my life and look back at the time in my 50s and have regrets I say, you know what? I never really accomplished what I wanted to. I never really was used like I wanted to be used because I just wouldn't give him everything. I just kept holding on to certain things. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the guy in my 50s that say, you know what? I let go and I'm amazed by what God has done. You know, Paul's prayer in chapter three of Ephesians when he said, when he said, I pray that you might, Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. He finishes that prayer by praying this. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we can ask or imagine. That's dream stuff. That's the life you've always wanted stuff according to the what? The Holy Spirit that works in you. He can do more than you can ever imagine with your life if you're willing to give him everything. Father, I hope I know that you speak through your word. Lord, my prayer today is that we would just grab a hold of the unbelievable potential that our lives have when we give everything to you. Father, whatever that means for each individual, I just pray that you'll take these moments and cement it to our heart that it doesn't go away, that we're consistently, continually reminded that you call us to be set apart to an exclusive relationship with you. And when that happens, there is no lid, there is no cap on what you do with our lives. So Father, challenge each one of us to live a life surrendered Lord, help me continue to grow my surrender to you and all of us, I pray. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen.